Broadcasting from the Mid-Migration Outfitter Studios, this is the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast. How much direction are you getting from the governor? Minnesota DNR had reintroduced him into this area. I don't know, maybe he didn't want me to tell the story on the show, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I, I knew you were going to go there. We're going to close the entire hunting season. Oh, well, really? The Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast is brought to you by Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. By Hay Bale Heights on Devil's Lake. Visit haybaleheights.com for more. By Ottertail County. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. And by Lake of the Woods Tourism. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Brett Amundsen. Thanks for tuning in on this station right here by downloading the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast or by uh, listening on demand at sportingjournalradio.com. Maybe you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook or uh, Rumble. We're on Rumble now. You can go all the places that you, you can watch and listen to this show. Thank you very much. Smash that like button or the subscribe button or follow whatever button you're, uh, you have in front of you. Hit it and tell people to watch this uh, because we got a great show for you. We actually have an in-studio guests, ladies and gentlemen, at home. Normally in the home studio, we don't have in-studio guests, uh, but today we do. We have a special guest, and we're going to talk waterfowl. So we've got a couple of guys uh, that that have spent their lives pretty much in the waterfowl world and the outdoor world, and uh, we're going to get their opinions on the state of waterfowling right now, what, uh, what kind of season we've had so far, uh, just overall what's going on as a, as a trend in the duck and goose hunting world right now, and uh, just kind of pick their brains and, and have them give us their favorite spots of, of trying to find where the ducks are right now. Maybe. We'll see what we can get. Uh, so first, in studio with us, Tom Landwehr, ladies and gentlemen. That's our in-studio crowd. Crowd goes well. Uh, former, yeah, oh, there we go, right there. Tom, thanks for being with us. I appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Good to see you all. Yeah, and then uh, via uh, the, uh, the software and the webcam, uh, John Debney from Delta Waterfall. John, how are you doing? Good. Glad to be on with you guys. Thanks for thanks for doing it. We appreciate it. Uh, so first of all, John, you're over in Bismarck. How have things been in North Dakota so far? You know, it's interesting, Brent. It's uh, you know we started off so incredibly dry, right? Just terrible drought. Actually, two years of drought. We didn't feel like we were in a drought last year, just because 2019 was so dry. But obviously, most of your listeners are aware how dry. We were here and in South Dakota and across Prairie Canada. And we went into the season real warm and real dry. And, you know, just here in the last little bit, I think over the last 10 days, we've had a little more than five inches of rain here in Bismarck. And, uh, you know, we start, it's finally started to feel like fall. So birds are moving a little bit and, uh, you know, giving us hope for the next little stretch of the duck season. You know, you brought up the drought, and that was something I wanted to ask both you guys because we had a pretty interesting experience on opener here in Minnesota, uh, September 25th, and and we hunt pretty much right on that line of where the the south zone and the central zone kind of meet. So we're not quite in the southern zone, but we're real close to it. So pretty much the southern portion of Minnesota, and we shot white fronted geese mm. on opener in Minnesota. Mm. And it seems lately, the last few years, we've seen more and more specs here in Western Minnesota, uh, but generally not not for a couple of weeks into the season. Mm-hmm. And then Dan, who is hunting up, 
up more in central Minnesota on opener, shot mostly green wing teal. Mm -hmm. So of course, uh, some people will probably say that's due to the the blue the early teal season. Maybe it pushed all the early teal out. I don't that I don't subscribe to that theory. My theory is, and I want to ask you guys this, is with the drought conditions that we've had, whether whether up north birds weren't finding water or the crops didn't grow very well, there wasn't a lot of food. It started an early migration, and that's 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 been my working theory on this. Well, let John weigh in on it too, Brett. But you know. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit in history and recall the 90s. In 1986, we had like some of the lowest duck populations ever, but the 90s, um, we had, we continued that trend of a drought in the Dakotas. It was very, very dry in the Dakotas. And yet in Minnesota, we had really exceptional hunting. And I remember sitting on Artichoke Lake, you know, where Artichoke Lake is, end of the season, and just having ducks all over the place. And we had a three bird limit. I got my three bluebills in like 15 minutes. And I think it was very clearly because the Dakotas were so dry, the birds moved into Minnesota because mm -hmm. there's more permanent water here. Mm -hmm. I think that was a longer term trend. You know, we had very, very good hunting in Minnesota in the 90s, even into early 2000s. But then as the Dakotas got wet and the prairie potholes started coming back and the habitat, they were so good and there's so much of it, I think we saw kind of a, a westward shift. So I, I don't know that you can uh, track year-to-year -year changes to that same kind of an effect. But I think that the Dakotas were quite, were so dry that frankly I wouldn't be at all surprised to see some of that uh, migration lapping into Minnesota. Sure. Well, I think we saw that a couple of years ago. I remember hunting in, hunting in South Dakota. We finally said, we got to go hunt South Dakota. And we, yeah. we applied for the lottery for a license over there, got a three-day license. And while we were struggling to shoot birds, there were some birds over there, but we were struggling to find them. Uh, all our friends back home were shooting limits of mallards every day. Yeah. And Lock Parle had loaded up with the most mallards I think they'd ever seen. Yeah. And that was because it was so dry in the Dakotas. So yeah. I, I can see that. Um, so John, I mean, you, you were real dry. What are the potholes looking like in North Dakota after all this rain that we've gotten? You know, you don't bounce back from a drought out of a couple rains, right? But it, you know, it was interesting. I was uh, up in Manitoba last week, got back on the backside of those rains and went just for a quick drive close to home. And, you know, I, I saw ducks in skinny water where there hadn't been water in a long time. So, you know, the thing about ducks is they have this incredible ability to anticipate those events and then take advantage of them, right? I mean, I don't know what it is about a duck, but, you know, you hear guys in Arkansas talk about all, the ducks always being on the rising edge. They're uh, there right the, now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the rising edge of floodwaters in places like the White River. And, and those ducks will exploit those resources so quickly. And, you know, going back to Tom's point in your sort of observation about blue wings, um, you know, I had the pleasure of taking my daughter out for the youth day here that I think was the 16th, I think that's right. And, you know, I wouldn't say we were loaded with blue wings the way we normally would like to be loaded with blue wings. On opening day, I saw one blue wing, he landed in the decoys, mm. um, sort of pre-shooting hours while I was just watching the marsh come alive um, and saw what you did and saw lots of green wings. Now, this, this is a long way from science, but what I've seen living out here for 23 years now is when we have dry years, boy, we just don't hold our blue wings. Hmm. Um, they get going pretty quick. 
And so, you know, I, I'm sure Minnesota probably saw the same thing is that with, you know, blue wings like a special specific kind of habitat. And when it's not around, they're happy to move along further down the pike. Do you think what, uh, Tom, maybe I'll ask you this question. Do you think what we're seeing this year um, could affect uh, bag limits and, and, you know, season lengths and things like that down the line. Somebody, you know how people get on Facebook these days. Somebody was talking about, hey, we're looking at a 40-day season next year. It's going to happen 40 days, and which, yeah, I, I kind of said the same thing. But what would what would it take for that type of scenario to happen where they'd say, gosh, we got to shorten things up. we got to reduce bag limits. What, what's the threshold there, you think? Well, John is more involved now with the sort of year-to-year regulatory framework, but they're, you know, we're, we're operating under a federal framework that sets limits based, season lengths and limits based on waterfowl breeding conditions. And they, we've been in a liberal uh, framework for you know, long, many, many years now, and it would take a dramatic decline to shift out of that adaptive harvest mm-hmm. management fr- uh category into something more moderate which would bring us to a, a more conservative season so I don't honestly I don't I don't see that happening yeah. a, until you get into a multi-year drought situation in a prairie pothole region which I which to John's point I think we, we probably are seeing the end of that well I, I I've kind of wanted to see more days of course which yeah. I think a lot of duck hunters will always like to have more opportunities you bet. Uh, whether it's it's great science or not but you know we're we seem fairly conservative in the in the central flyway or the Mississippi flyway Sorry, compared to some of the other flyaways for whatever reasons. But um, I, you know, I've probably discussed this with both of you guys going back to that early teal season. Uh, Minnesota, first time we've had it since what, 62 or whatever it was? 63. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts now that it's happened? Like, we, I'll tell you my experience. We went out and hunted every day during the early teal season. It was five days at the beginning of September. Um, we had chances at blue wing teal, but when they were flying, if we didn't have 100% identification on them, we didn't shoot. And it wasn't until they got past us a few times that we said, oh gosh, those were blue wings. Um, unless they landed and swam into the decoys. That's, that, was, <laughs> that was the easy way to identify them. So we goose hunted. Oh, sure. We pretty much just hunted geese, but, but we had a spinner out there and if teal came around, whatever, we would, and we could identify it probably. So we shot mm-hmm. a couple of teal, but we mainly goose hunted. Um, what did you hear from the Minnesota side here? What have you heard from hunters from their experience and looking now a season, you know, a month into the season, are people happy that we had that early teal season? You know, um, I did, actually didn't take part in it. We we're moving and all kinds of other reasons I didn't get to take part in it. I know people who did. And, you know, the challenge always in Minnesota is that we are a production state and a migration state. Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot of ducks here, a lot of brown ducks in September. And, um, you know, it always cracks me up when you go to buy blue wing teal decoys because they'll, they'll sell you a decoy, a Drake decoy with a big white crest on it. Right. And it's like, we never see a white crescent on a blue wing in Minnesota, you know. Yeah. And, um, and it's not, it, it's more typical that most of the ducks you see on opening day in Minnesota are brown ducks. Mm-hmm. And so it is very much of a challenge to identify ducks, especially early morning. You know, typically you're facing southwest or southeast rather. The sun's coming the sun's up, you're your seeing eyes. black shadows. Yeah. And how are you going to identify a duck? 
uh, flying at 30 miles an hour. So, you know, that's always been a concern. Minnesota's always been a very conservative state in terms of waterfall harvest because we've always had such a big impact. I think, you know, one of the realities that we're facing now is we have half the hunters that we did, say, 40 years ago. You know, we're down to 70,000, 80,000 hunters. We had 140,000 duck hunters at one point in time. We had some of the highest harvests of any of the states in the country. And so we, you know, we, arguably we should have been very conservative because we could make a big impact on the harvest. I think part of our consciousness now is that, you know, um, we, we don't have that impact. You know, we don't have that number of hunters. We can uh, liberalize a little bit more. We can take advantage of some of those birds uh, that we uh, typically don't. Uh, get a big harvest on like teal and assuming that hunters can do a good job of duck identification you know that's not going to have a long-term negative impact what I saw from the conservation officer reports is that generally uh, people were pretty good on their duck identification skills and it could be in, in part because there's a lot of blueing around and not a lot of other ducks uh, flying but uh, I think uh, DNR is running a, uh, a test I have not seen the results of that yet you know, to, okay. to, uh, to uh, see what the uh, non-target take was mm -hmm. uh, and if we're within you know some uh, level of acceptable uh, uh, error then I would expect the season will continue yeah it's a three-year experiment right yep, and they yep. have spy blinds and they're uh, gonna figure out what the the rate of mistake ducks were right. and it, you brought up the license sales and I want to ask you more about that uh, but but first before we do that uh, what you did in, in North Dakota John is a little bit different you guys had bonus blueing teal for the first two weeks of the season uh, how did you how did that go and what do you hear from hunters what are you hearing from hunters about that um, back I think it's over there? quite popular uh, you know I think in a state like North Dakota where the hunting effort is probably a bit more diffuse than it is in places like Minnesota or Wisconsin or Iowa that have more recently participated in those experimental seasons. I think it'd be hard to do spy blind stuff in, in North Dakota just by the nature of the habitat and the way hunters distribute. And, you know, when that, when that offer, remember this all came out of the conversations at the flyaway scale where the Southern states were asking for six you know, six teal in the bag. And I think the Northern states were happy to go along with it if they had the opportunity to participate in the teal season in some way, shape, form, or fashion. I think, you know, North Dakota and South Dakota looked at that and thought, boy, oh boy, we don't want to go through the, you know, the spy blind experiment stuff. But, you know, how about just give us uh, two extra blue wing teal for those first 16 days of the season? And you know, in a year like this where we don't have super abundant blue wings, um, I don't think probably many guys shot those bonus teal, but when we have mm -hmm. them, the production's good and habitat conditions are good, uh, it's awful nice to be able to have a crack at a few, you know, from my vantage point, um, I'm not that terribly interested in shooting mallards and pintail and some of the other ducks uh, in September, just because frankly, they're pin feathery, they're strawny. Blue wings yeah. in September are almost always nice and fat. Um, they make for a good table fare. And, and so it's pretty nice to come home with, you know, on, it doesn't happen a lot, but, you know, a guy can come home with eight blue wings on the strap mm. early in the season. And that's a, that's a great opportunity. And again, as Tom pointed out, um, you know, blue wing teal are super abundant. Uh, they're subject to really low historic and contemporary harvest rates. Um, probably one of the more short-lived duck species, kind of, you know, not quite boom or bust, but 
you know, we should take advantage of them when we have them. And, and so I think I really I'm pleased with what the North Dakota and South Dakota Game and Fish did. I think it was a great solution to uh, sort of the circumstances we have here. So uh, one of you guys uh, maybe can help me out with a little bit, help me out with this a little bit. If I remember correctly, it was a bonus to blue wing teal or an early teal of blue or green wings, correct? You guys yeah. remember that? Was that that was the option, right? Yeah. Why what, yeah. do you know why there was why it wouldn't have been two bonus green wing teal? Is that because you can shoot all the ducks and if you got if you got you could you know you got your ducks in hand, you can identify the green wings and blue wings better? You know, I, I'm not quite sure. I think you know the the teal season is primarily made for blue wings. Right. Um, you know, if you if you go down, you know, if you're in Kansas in September, or you're in Texas or Louisiana in September, especially early in those seasons when most of the harvest is taking place, it's mostly blue it's wings. Blue wings yeah. As the season goes on, you know, you start to see more green wings creep into the bag. But you know, we green wings get I wouldn't say heavily harvested. They're a, amongst the most harvested ducks. And so I, and I'm not quite sure what the negotiations were. In fact, I have to remind myself that they're not two bonus teal; they're two bonus blue wing teal. Right. Before right. the season every year, because uh, it is different. If you're in Illinois during the teal season and a green wing flies by, he's fair game. And so, I'm not quite sure how it came to be, but it is what it is. And and I think it's, I think it's right minded because you know those seasons were primarily oriented around blue wings. Last year, John, you had a number of duck hunters traveling to North Dakota because of COVID. They couldn't get into Saskatchewan or Manitoba. Uh, what What are you seeing out there this year? It's I, you know, I haven't been out as much as I would like, um, but the reports I'm hearing is it's pretty busy. Um, you know, I think there's some people that still didn't want to piddle around with, uh, you know, crossing the international border. I guess I can understand that, although. I was amazed what how simple the process was when I did it last week for the first time in a long, long time. Um, so I think it's busy, and you know, I think it's interesting when hunters find places. You know, you know, where we had potentially last year some displaced hunters from Manitoba and Saskatchewan that came to North Dakota. I think probably a lot of those guys looked around and said, you know, uh, maybe we're going to do this for a few years mm-hmm. now. The habitat conditions last year versus the habitat conditions this year, pretty different. Um, the marshes look different, a lot of dry ponds. Um, but, you know, I think probably, you know, those the hunters that came out here found some success last year, probably said, well, heck, we're going to go back and do that again. I'd be curious to hear what happens to some of those because we definitely lost some of our sloughs when they dried up. You know, they the farmers reclaimed them, and I'm not going to fault them for that because they were probably farming them at one point, and um, you know they're trying to get some of their land back. It's just it's just you know unfortunate for us duck hunters and pheasant hunters for that matter too to lose some of that habitat out there. Um, and when it comes to those those license sales, go ahead, John. We don't lose wetlands necessarily unless they put ditches or drain pipes in them right um and you know and i've been away from you know minnesota for a number 23 years now but you know it probably does a lot of minnesota habitat a lot of good frankly to get dried out a little bit uh 
get rid of some of that hybrid cattail. One of the mm. ways to do that is have yeah. a farmer run a sick, you know, a sickle bar through it. Um, and if that stuff goes into production, but the hydrology hasn't been changed, that'll be back to good habitat in the future where I, I would guarantee you that a lot of stuff had been pretty degraded over time. Tom will know this. Tom worked with a, a team of really dedicated, you know, shallow lakes and small wetlands people in Minnesota. And, you know, frankly, those resources, probably the best thing for Minnesota is painful this year, but some yeah. of that had better right now, frankly. Well, and it's uh, to, to that point, John, uh, for, the, for the average person, um, you know, when we go to wildlife management school, we learn all about the prairie wet dry cycle. And, and that is actually, you know, the prairies have adapted under this, this uh, irregular cycle of, go, of wet and dry. And when the prairies dry out, the ponds dry out, uh, kills the muskrats, kills the carp, kills everything that you don't want in that, in that potholes. In cases of agricultural fields, they may get plowed up, but it will get wet again. And when it does, you know, over a period of years, you know, the cattails come back, the muskrats come back, it makes really prime duck habitat. And so this prairie wet dry cycle is, is something that's been recognized by waterfowl managers for a long time and actually appreciated. And when we talk about things like Marsh Lake, where we've now got a drawdown structure on there, that's the purpose of those drawdown structures is to emulate that natural cycle because we've, you know, sort of screwed up the plumbing so bad that we have to uh, force a human uh, uh, intervention on it now. That Marsh Lake project was quite a project, and it's working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From, I mean, it's not working. Stay far, far away <laughs> until next year. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously. Swan Lake, right? Swan Lake's another example Swan, where, mm-hmm. you, know, um, you know, obviously I'm sure there are a lot of frustrated guys that can't get 16 foot boat and 40 horse outboards in it. Yep. But, you know, what that'll do is reset the vegetative re- regime, re, re, you know, kick off, submerge aquatic vegetation, invertebrates, and, you know, uh, you know it's sort of a, uh, you know, modicum of pain now for a long-term more resilient system more productive yep and and when you have those projects that are successful like that that increases more access uh for waterfall hunters and i want to ask you guys in that in the in the trend of license hills we're obviously seeing a reduction Mm -hmm. and part of it i think is yeah kids aren't being introduced to the outdoors as much they don't have the tradition of their father and grandfathers maybe taking them out or mothers or whoever um they're they're inside electronics all that that whole argument but i think the bigger argument is access and i want to i want to get your opinions on how waterfowling has changed because when you look back in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s and even when i grew up when i first started duck hunting and goose hunting a lot of it was past shooting Mm -hmm. you don't see that as much anymore the you know a lot of the the public grounds like say lac parl that had the state lines you don't see people lining up to go past shoot one goose as it flies over anymore Mm -hmm. you see people setting up decoy spreads and you know leasing land and sometimes access is getting more and more limited is that becoming a bigger factor in a reduction in license sales, or is that just another contributing factor? Well, I sure don't think so in Minnesota, Brett. I mean, we've got outstanding access in Minnesota. You know, we've got, you know, we say 10,000 lakes, whatever that means, but we've got 3,000 public accesses on lakes. And, you know, for hunting, 
you know, it's not the small prairie pothole that is the, the place where you go to hunt ducks. You go to the bigger lakes, the Swan Lakes, John mentioned Heron Lake, Marsh Lake, you know, those big lakes that all have public accesses and you can get on them and you can hunt. And we've got just unfettered, and you think of the 12 million acres of public land that we've got. If you want to walk into a beaver dam, you can. You know, up north you can shoot that and get into a wild rice lake. There's tons of wild rice lakes up north. Hunt on rivers. I mean, there's there's just an abundance of places to hunt. I think, at least on the Minnesota side, I'm, and I, it'd be different in Texas, it's probably different in North Dakota, but I think on the Minnesota side, I don't think access is really the problem at all. You don't see those water hunters as much in North Dakota. <laughs> no, but I think, you know, the point you make there is that um, that kind of hunting is expensive. Yeah. You know, you got to have a boat. I remember the first time we, my buddies and I had a boat. It was a little plywood thing. It was an absolute casket, uh, you know, water casket is what it was. But we went out in it and we, you know, paddled across a small slough on it. But, you know, if you're going to, you know, unfortunately, we sort of sort of uh, foster this belief that, well, you got to have the big boat. You got to have the motor on it. You got to have, you know, three dozen you know, full-bodied decoys with, you know, the fanciest uh, Texas rig on them. And you got to have, you know, a $3,000 Benelli shotgun. You got to have two good dogs that, you know, compete in trials. And, you know, we, we create this notion that in order to be a real duck hunter, you got to have these things. And, you know, the first time I shot a duck, I think I was walking through the woods and a wood duck up, got up out of a pond and I shot it. You know, it, it does not have to be that complicated. And that's, I think, one of the messages we got to convey to people is it does not have to be that complicated. And you can get out with a pair of hip boots and a shotgun and a, and a couple of decoys and shoot ducks. Do you think, uh, obviously we don't, we want people to participate because we want the tradition to continue, but how important is the fundraising of those license sales? You know, when you hear about, oh gosh, or we're not selling as much as many licenses, especially from say the DNR, mm-hmm. how much of that is, is magnification of the issue to make sure that they can pay people to work there mm-hmm. and how much of it is a dire situation that we're losing people participating in the outdoors well it, at least in minnesota's case and again john may have other views in other states but at least in minnesota's case when you look at the cost of sort of wildlife management wildlife management for hunting purposes the license sales is frankly a fairly small element of that and I'll come back to some of the other elements but the license sales do pay for specific activities so you buy a duck stamp and that can only be used for duck management purposes nonetheless if we have 70,000 hunters and you're each paying $10 for a, for a duck stamp that's only $700,000 sounds like a lot but in the scheme of things it's not more and more we're asking the public at large to pay for some of these things because there are great public benefits to wetlands there are great public benefits to grasslands there's great public benefits to the management activities that are going on and so in minnesota we've got the legacy amendment for instance so that's putting 130 million dollars a year into wildlife management we've got the crep program we've got crp we've got these agricultural programs that are also supporting wildlife management the the hunting and fishing fees pay for hunting and fishing management activities, not so much for the habitat work. And that is where it's important, but even there, it's, you know, some of that fee uh, funding is coming from the general fund to, uh, to cover some of those activities. Wildlife uh, law enforcement, for instance, uh, should not just be paid for by hunters and anglers. When, yeah. you know, warden takes on a case of somebody illegally shooting a wolf, well, why should hunters and anglers be the sole bearers of that? So we do spread the cost uh, you know, across society at large, but those dedicated fees, those pay for very specific 
wildlife management activities. They're very important. Um, so keeping numbers up is important for that, but I would argue that it's more important for the political uh, strength of having a hunter base. Mm. That is important. You got to have it's strength in numbers for yep. sure. And it's important that we continue uh, having a way of life that we enjoy uh, uh, to continue into the future. Uh, I, and I will say this too about Minnesota. One thing, you know, we've all done a little bit of traveling and I've traveled to a lot of different states and particularly I, a lot of the discussion revolves around the fishing side when it comes to this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those of us that live in Minnesota, we take for granted the outdoor opportunities that we have. Right. And I'll talk to people that live out east or down south and they'll say, wait a minute, you can just, wait a minute, <clears throat> y'all can just go to that lake and start fishing? Because a lot of times it's down south. Uh, and I'll say, yeah, I mean, it's a public lake, it's public water, we can, you know, you gotta buy a license or whatever, but we can go fish where in so many places you have to pay, yeah. you know, these private accesses to get into these lakes so we have amazing natural resource opportunities a big state like texas there's very little public land yeah it's, it's very hard you know so what do we what do we need to do to what do you guys think we need to do to to increase participation and get license sales back up well, I'll let John comment more on Delta's efforts, but Delta, uh, I'm a board member of Delta Waterfowl, and Delta's got a, what's called a Hunter, 3, Hunter R3, R3 program, uh, recruitment, retention, reactivation, and I, I think really that's the key. When you look at the demographics of the hunters, there's a lot of us old white guys out there, right? And that's not a, a good place to be when you're thinking about the future. And so we all recognize we gotta get more uh, women, we got to get my, more minorities, we got to get more young kids out there to start taking up hunting because we, we all believe that people will find hunting and fishing as exciting and interesting and as, as a lifelong endeavor as we do, but we got to get people exposed to that. So I think, you know, personally, I want to get uh, new people out there and organizationally, I think, uh, uh, you know, all the hunting organizations ought to be doing this and Delta's got a really good program underway right now. I have two memberships to Delta Waterfall, actually. I just want to <laughs> point that out. I should probably get that cleared up with you guys, John, but I'm getting two magazines every time they come out. But tell us about your, your R3 program a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, it's built on, it's built on this premise, right? And, and it started back in the early 2000s, and I think it's sort of a fascinating story because um, Jim Fisher, a colleague of mine, uh, was sitting around the, at the Delta Marsh sort of looking at the Canadian uh, annual hunting review, which shows the annual harvest. And he was looking at the hunter numbers and thought, holy cow, it seems really small. And, and he sat down and looked at it and traced it over time. He's like, holy cow, we've lost 70% of our hunters since the 70s. And, you know, he called down here and said, well, what's it like in the States? And we're like, oh, we don't have any problem with hunter numbers here in the States. And, you know, everybody's duck hunting and, you know, there's no problem here until we looked at the numbers and figured out even coming out of the late 90s, we were a third below where we were in the 70s. And, and we didn't really hear anybody talking about it. You know, we heard lots of people talking about the decline of lesser scop. We heard lots of people talking about the decline of pintail and those crises or black ducks. And we didn't hear anybody talking about duck hunting. And so, you know, it started with, uh, you know, I think in 2001 with the first ever youth hunt in Canada that we worked very hard to get the statutory authority for. And then it's been building over there in, you know, Joel Bryce and his team have done an exceptional job of being really thoughtful about 
what it's actually going to take to recruit hunters. And, and so, you know, we've got the youth activities that are primarily done through our chapter network around the country and our volunteers take proceeds from their local events to get youth involved. Uh, Joel and his team are working very hard to introduce new young wildlife professionals to, to duck hunting through our university hunting program. And, and, and then there's this huge public policy nexus, right? And again, as a kid who grew up in Minnesota and lives in North Dakota, um, you know, Brett, you mentioned it's pretty easy to get, you know, complacent or not recognize what's around you. But, you know, go to Pennsylvania where you can't shoot a duck on a Sunday or North Carolina or Maryland or Virginia until relatively recently. Um, where you don't have access and opportunity and, and you'd go to places, you know, let's go, to, let's talk about Arkansas for a second, which has got this incredible tradition and burgeoning industry around duck hunting. And, you know, the state WMAs, frankly, are falling apart from decaying infrastructure. And, and when, tough get, when stuff gets competitive and access gets limited, the public relies on those public trust assets and they're not being managed as well, frankly, because they, the agencies don't have the money to replace infrastructure, the personnel to run it. And so the public policy nexus on things like Sunday hunting, things like creating more public hunting opportunities, defending public hunting, uh, all plays a big role that's intertwined, at least the way we see it here at Delta. Hmm. Yeah, John, you make a good point. I, you know, we feel a little smug in Minnesota here with this sort of funding mix we've got for for activities, and and Minnesota is really an island, uh, you know, in that in that desert. There are not many states that have that kind of money going into natural resources, and we're just very very fortunate here. But we also recognize that, especially in public policy. Uh, stage at the national level, you have to have hunters in every state. You can't just have hunters in the Perry Pothole states. And so it's important that we think about what we can do in these other states in order to keep uh, hunting a viable activity for uh, new, uh, you know new hunters as well. Tom, what are you doing these days? <laughs> I just frankly just retired. Uh, October 1st, I retired from my okay. most recent job, which was the executive director for the uh, campaign to save the Boundary Waters. And by the way, we got good news from the Biden administration on that today. I just retired October 1st. Uh, I, I kind of mentioned quickly to you, I'm between houses. We sold yeah. our, our old house on September 2nd, and the builder on our new house has hit and run into all kinds of COVID delays. And so... Well, hopefully we'll move in next week, but as a consequence, for two months I have been living in my travel trailer. Uh, uh, sometimes in fun places, sometimes in not so fun Well, places. I was going to say, some people dream about that kind of lifestyle. Van life, yeah. yeah. But, it's, uh, it's not quite all it's cracked up to be when you have to be in the cities. Yeah, no, no thanks. Well, congrats on the retirement. Thank you. What What was the good news uh, about the Boundary So waters? the... Uh, uh, the uh, under the Obama administration, the, the, the leases for a proposed copper mine were rescinded. This proposed copper mine on the edge of the Boundary Waters, any pollution that comes out of this copper mine, and all copper mines pollute, would have flowed right back into the Boundary Waters and been very detrimental to fish, yeah. wild rice, to just the whole environment. Um, those leases were terminated, they were reinstated uh, under the Trump administration. Uh, the, the Biden administration just now kicked off, requires a big environmental study to decide whether or not that's the right place 
for uh, this kind of sulfide ore copper mining. And uh, there's going to be a public comment period. There'll be a lot of information about that coming out pretty soon. But we're, we're hopeful that the, the science is going to prevail and it's going to become clear, as it was in 2016, that this is no place to do a copper mine. It's going to be devastating to this you know, immense natural resource that we're, again, very fortunate to have here in Minnesota. Yeah, it's always a tough one because you want to give people an opportunity to, to have jobs and to work and, and support the economy and things like that. But you just have to be smart where you do things like that. That's right. Not every place should be mined. Right. Not every place should have a nuclear reactor. Not every yeah. place, you know, should have a gun range next to it, frankly. And, and that's just, you know, part of our decision making process is let's decide the right places to put certain things. The Boundary Waters is a special place. It is, it is extraordinarily special. And uh, I hope, hope to spend much more time up there uh, now in my retirement so uh you've been out as you were commissioner was is it four four years now is that uh 2019 uh uh february 2019 two years two years all right so are you uh I, <laughs> I want to ask you what you think about the last two years, but maybe we'll, how about we do this? Are you are you more le- less stressed? Are you, is there more less stress in your life since you've not been commissioner? Not as long as I was working, you know, because protecting the Boundary Waters was my most yeah. recent job, and that That's you know pretty, pretty stressful. Uh, things were not going the right direction for the last uh, for the last two years of the uh, you know Trump administration, frankly, and so it was very stressful, and we're you know working very hard to protect the Boundary Waters. Um, but, um, uh, you know, any, you know, almost every job in conservation, almost every single job in conservation, if you aren't making some people upset, yeah. you are not doing your job. And so, you know, from the time I started as a wildlife biologist back in 1981 until I retired, I knew some of the stuff I'm doing is making some people mad. And you just have to accept that if you want to truly have an impact on, you know, making Minnesota or the United States a better place. There's no way to please everybody. Absolutely it, not. You know, and that when it comes to politics too, I always feel like that's the right gets conser- the conservatives get conservation wrong yeah. a lot of times. <laughs> if, if if that makes any sense, I've never understood that. But uh, you can you can be pro job and still be pro conservative and pro conservation. And you think of the boundary waters. You think you know if you spend any time in Ely, if you spend any time on the Gunflint Trail, there are big. Uh, not big industries, but there's a lot of businesses that are dependent on the boundary waters. You know, the outfitters, the, the gas yeah. stations, the hotels. It is not as if keeping a wilderness means you're not having an economic impact. It just is a different diffuse, as John used, used the word for hunting. It's a diffused sort of economic impact, but it's very sustainable. It will be there forever. And we need those places. We need wild lands. All of us hunters and anglers realize this. We need these wild lands just to regenerate our soul. And and I think of those poor schleps in Iowa and, and, you know, uh, Kansas, who don't have wild lands, and you know uh, what a what a big yeah. part of our life that is. Oh, and we're very fortunate, you know. And I, I don't always agree with everything that's that's taken place in Minnesota. It comes from from management, of course. Not everybody's going to agree on everything. It's just it's impossible to think that way. But we're very fortunate with the opportunities that we have here, and I'd like to see them continue that way. Yeah. You made some changes uh, during your time as commissioner. There were some changes made to the the waterfall structure, the yeah. the, the season splits, and the three zones which I thought were great. And I feel like there were the season really, uh, there's always changes, but I feel like there were some, uh, I don't want to call them major changes, but some 
fairly major changes taken mm -hmm, during that mm -hmm. time. Yep. Now, this year we've had a few more major changes. Yep. Uh, overall, what are your thoughts on some of the changes? We talked about early teal a little bit. Uh, there's a, The spinning wing restriction was removed. The sunset uh, closure was removed. The Canada Goose bag limit was increased. Uh, they shortened the split in the south zone, which at this point, it's mm -hmm. the central and the south is pretty much, it's almost like two zones now really what are your thoughts on some of those changes and do you think that uh do you think they'll continue that way or should we change some other things well i think it's a mixed bag and, and uh you know go back to uh, you mentioned the changes we made back in 20 2012 2013 and john was actually part of that we convened a waterfall input group and you know put out there a number of uh, potential changes we thought could be made because again minnesota had been very very conservative uh, for many many years and we thought some of those changes were uh, uh, overdue. Uh, for instance, we, we used to have a nine o'clock opener. Right. Remember that? I mean, you'd sit yeah. there for four hours and you'd watch all the ducks fly away, and then nine o'clock would come, there wouldn't be a duck around. Yeah. It's like, what was the sense of that? So we made some changes with the input of this group. Um, we there were some changes that we considered that we did not make. Um, uh, you know, anytime you make a change, again, you're going to make some people happy, some people upset, and it's a real mixed bag. I think some of the changes that were made this year were, were uh, some we should have made. Uh, you know, spinning wing decoys, uh, that was one I thought uh, we should have changed. We did not uh, get the opportunity to do that. But, um, you know, I'd, I'd offer on a four o'clock closure, there's very good science on a four o'clock closure, um, especially in uh, a state like this where we're a production state. Uh, there was good research done on the Chippewa National uh, Forest that showed that uh, when you have a uh, sunset, uh, allow shooting till sunset, you're shooting your breeding birds. And um, uh, uh, so we, we kept that in place. Now, well, I'll offer is based on the uh, previous observation, we have half the number of hunters today that we did back when some of those studies were done. Perhaps it's not become an issue anymore. And so uh, if, the, if the current science suggests that you're not going to be over harvesting birds by going till sunset, uh, we should go to sunset. Hmm. You know, normally we don't, we scout in the evenings anyway. So yeah. it was that the sunset was never really a big deal for me. There's, you know, it's, this is one of those things that's kind of an urban myth that you're going to go out and you're going to get the, the, the sunset flight, right? Well, most yeah. ducks come in after, after sunset. sunset. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, just, just to Tom's point, I, you know, I was looking at some data and in 1999, Minnesota was killing 272,200 mallards. There were 633,700 days of field by hunters. Okay, that was in 99. Most recent estimate had Minnesota shooting 98,723,000 mallards in 263,500 days of field. Wow. So, yep. I mean, so the mallard harvest is down by i'm not a great math guy but more than well more than half duck hunter days of field are down by by way more than half and and i i just i i you know i grew up a kid in minnesota that thought every duck was sacred and conservative bag limits and all the rest of that stuff and we were doing it right. Louisiana was doing it wrong. I believe that stuff. I've still got my helicopter hanky. Um, <laughs> by helicopters after Dennis Anderson's writing in the start or back in the papers during the duck crisis. But the fact of the matter is, I find it 
almost unbelievable if the current rate we're harvesting ducks in a place like Minnesota with the number of hunters and the number of hunter days of field that we're going to do anything bad to duck populations. Frankly, I don't think we can do it at, at the U.S. scale because we see the same trends that we see in Minnesota at the Mississippi and Central Flyway scales as well. Is We just don't have, I think people are perceiving that we still have the guns in the field that we did in the 70s. In a lot of ways, I wish we did, but we don't. And so hunters' ability to sort of harm waterfall populations at this point, I think is very significantly muted. And Judd, you mentioned Canada earlier. I don't, I don't know the specific numbers, but I think Canada has lost 80% of its waterfall hunters. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's down over 70%. And if you look, you know, if you look in 1974, uh, just that year stands out because both Saskatchewan and Alberta shot more mallards in 1974 than Arkansas did. Hmm. And I mean, that's just not happening. Yeah, there are American hunters that go up and pound the hell out of ducks for three or four days here and there. Um, but you can't replace an army of farm kids with 870s. <laughs> I mean, you just can't. And so, you know, Canada's harvest, you know, I'm hearing from hunters in the South that, you know, you guys are killing all the ducks and you're killing all the baby ducks. Well, I mean, that's a nice story. And yeah, I know you saw a video of Rich and Tone up there having a great shoot in Saskatchewan, but the real numbers tell you uh, Prairie Canada and, and including North Dakota were and it ain't even close. Well, that that discussion could be about uh, you know more food on the ground. I mean, they they talk about short stopping and all that, and Eastern Arkansas is having some issues, and and so there's a lot of factors at at play. I think when it comes to you know if there's actually an impact on what's going on down there. I don't. Obviously, we're not shooting all the ducks up here. Um, I want to I want to shift gears for just one second because. Uh, I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier, and that's the, well, actually we're still kind of talking about, but hunter numbers and the impacts that we're having. When you talk about it being the, the political force, the power in numbers, and why it's important to have uh, more duck hunters, give us, the, give us the doomsday scenario. What do you guys think? If, if we continue to shrink, what does the future look like of, of waterfowling? Well, I'll just, I'll wait in your time. I mean, you know, you know, Minnesota hunters have benefited immensely, as have hunters everywhere, from something like the Conservation Reserve Program mm -hmm. uh, or the CREP program, and which is a derivative of the Conservation Reserve Program. Well, I got news for you. Um, I know who's working on those programs in Washington, D.C., and I know who's writing letters to legislators on those programs in Washington, D.C., and they're DU members, they're Presidents Forever members, and they're Delta members. Um, and when you lose those people to care about those things, those things are not going to be important anymore. Um, you know, I don't think a soccer mom in Eden Prairie cares about CRP the same way a pheasant hunter from Chaska that wants to go out to Stevens County and shoot pheasant studs. I just, I don't believe it. Um, in Tom Brady, these habitat programs provide a diversity of benefits to the public at large, but from my perspective, the public at large rarely does anything. 
Um, so it's always going to be the sportsman, sportswoman conservationist that is going to champion the important, important issues that these resources face. And so as we lose duck hunters and pheasant hunters and other sorts of hunters, we lose the voices that move the public policy needle. Uh, you know, that's from a guy who's been working on this stuff for 23 years. I've been hearing fairy tales about the public at large uh, willing to engage in these issues for years. And I know who's at the meetings and I know who's not. Yeah. So that's, that may be a little binary and I may be a little grumpy because I paddled too far to <laughs> too few ducks yesterday. <laughs> that's my story to it. Well, it, it, John, I think, you know, one of the important points that you make is that, you know, the bugaboo here is not necessarily anti-hunters. Certainly that's always right. an issue. But but CRP, uh, Conservation Reserve Program, you know, when you go back to 1980, 1979, 1980, right before CRP was created, there were agricultural programs that were intended to take land out of production. It was ag, was it, help me out, John, ag, uh, APR, or conservation... Yeah. There was there was uh, soil bank back in the sixties. Soil bank, and there was an yep. annual program. I want to say it was ARP or APR or something like that. But it was a, it was you were as a landowner, you were allowed to set aside your land for three years, and then you got a deficiency payment as a result of that. And you know, actually, some of the research came out of Minnesota. Al Berner out of Medelia did some of this research. What he did is he looked at the production of game birds, pheasants, and ducks on those kinds of acres. And uh, ACP, that's what it was, Egg Conservation Program. Um, and uh, what was happening as a result of that short-term habitat, what he found is that it was actually detrimental to have that three-year program because those birds would get used to nesting in this area. They come in and they nest, and then the next year they'd be uh, mowed up or, or the habitat would be gone. So you did not get any long-term benefit from ACP. And so. Uh, it, it incentivized the Fish and Wildlife Service to create what they called the Mid-Continent Project. You maybe remember that, John, where they were looking at how do we use private lands, because most ducks come off of private lands, how do we use private lands to maximize duck production? And out of that grew Conservation Reserve Program and the Wetland Reserve Program. But they would not have been passed through Congress if somebody wasn't there pushing those. So you look at the 36 million acres we started with in CRP back in 1980, 81, it was the single largest conservation program ever in the United States, and from the standpoint of uh, birds, both ducks and pheasants, the best thing that ever happened. And, and um, you know, you, you know in those kinds of agricultural discussions, you know who is going to be at the table every day. It's going to be Farm Bureau, it's going to be Farmers Union, it's going to be the, you know, corn growers, it's going to be the, the agricultural interests. But if you don't have conservationists at the table, you're missing a huge opportunity, and in fact, you could end up having lots of detriment by not being at the table. Swamp Buster, you talked about those wetlands that were dry now, they might fill up again. Swamp Buster saved millions of acres of wetlands in Minnesota and North Dakota, and without conservationists constantly pushing for that, we would lose those. And so we lose all of these public benefits, we lose that, that flood water retention, we lose the pollinator habitat, we lose all of these public benefits, but it is that handful of uh, voices that are powered by the grassroots that are making the difference. Right. 
Yeah, you do. To your point, John, you do hear about people saying, you know, we need to do this, we need to do that. But it is these conservation organizations that are the ones actually doing the work and the biologists with the boots on the ground actually doing it out there. And as long as they're getting funding, they can continue to do so. And with COVID happening the last couple of years, some of those conservation organizations have struggled. They've had to cancel banquets and, and fundraising efforts. How have things been going at, uh, at Delta lately? You know, we came through it really pretty well. Um, I, I think better than we would have anticipated when the pandemic first started. And, you know, I think we did it right. I think we were aggressive in our response. We weren't, you know, we we knew we had to cut costs. Um, you know, we we got we did it without having to do layoffs, but we did furloughs um, to save resources. And we worked our tail off to raise money. And, and what Delta did, and, and I think a lot of our colleagues did as well, is, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time, you know, sort of complaining about the pandemic. What we is we spent a lot of time talking about what our value proposition was for Doc Hunters. And, and so, you know, we came out of it really well, Brett. And, you know, I think, uh, I think we all learned a lot about that. Um, and, you know, we had major donors step up in a big way. We had our volunteers that in places where they could hold events that frankly blew us away. I mean, we had some events in Iowa last year that were just, you know, I was one of those places that came online pretty early. Our volunteers worked their tails off and had great events. And we, and we saw that replicated all across the country. So, I mean, you know, if you're in the seat that I'm in full time every day is this we work for these people. Right. And I think it was sort of another moment to reflect on how our organization is so incredibly dependent on the goodwill of others and how it is because of those resources because, you know, people prioritize Delta waterfall in the pandemic. And I, you know, we're incredibly appreciative for that. Do you guys think that this has given us an opportunity to find new ways to raise money for these organizations? You know, you, you hear people talk about, well, gosh, I don't need to win another shotgun or I don't need, which is just crazy talk, by the way. <laughs> I don't that's, buy it. That's crazy talk. <laughs> but I don't need another print. I'm running out of wall space. The old uh, fundraising banquet model of everybody gathering and having a couple of beers and winning prints and shotguns. I don't mind it. I, I love prints. I'll always find more more wall space or I'll donate prints to somebody else. And you never have too many shotguns let's be honest um but is this is this giving us an opportunity to find new ways to go out and engage people to become members of your organization and find new ways to fundraise i i think that's before us brett um i tell you i after what i've seen the past months i i don't see you know i hear everybody say that but they're always saying it at the banquets <laughs> so they're going to banquets and saying they don't need another shotgun or don't need another print but they're at the banquet so maybe maybe just maybe they're not telling the truth um, <laughs> so i mean i listen there's only so many ways to raise money for these outfits and you know um you know i think all of you know delta and a number of our colleagues have done online stuff and that's you know, online auctions and that stuff. That's all well and good. But, you know, there's something about the energy, especially in the right room at the right event. 
you've got hunters and anglers and conservationists together that there's i you know what i think is really going to save the future of hunting is not that you know delta raises a bunch of money through online auctions it's going to be around that and with sportsmen and conservationists as much as it's going to be about money frankly and so I just I don't see it going away. I, I just don't. I think there's there's still a pretty incredibly high enthusiasm for it. We're starting new chapters every week around the country. Um, you know, I, I I don't see this becoming sort of a reformation on how nonprofits fundraise, I guess. Well, I emceed another uh, Bluffland Whitetails banquet uh, earlier this year, and the place was packed. Yeah. And everybody was pulling out $20 bills to roll dice and spin wheels and, and do whatever they can. And and uh, so it was good showing this year. You know, I think it's fair to say that nonprofits are always looking for new ways to raise money, you know. And, and I think the obviously Delta and DU and PF didn't uh, originate the banquet you know, uh, fundraising idea. It came on later as they matured over time. But I think for many of the chapters, the banquet is the social event of the year, especially in, you know, small towns and, you know, outside the big cities. You know, it's, you don't have a, a, a Delta fundraiser in downtown Minneapolis. You know, it's in Delano or it's in one of the, uh, the smaller towns outside of town because that is, a, it's, it's, how people celebrate, it's how they get together in, in uh, especially in rural uh, America. So I think the the um, the fundraisers, the banquets have a place. But I think what what we learned, and I was running a nonprofit during this period too. What we learned is that when people understand your mission, when they share your values, they are going to open their wallets. They're going to find a way to give you money. And if they can't go to a banquet, if they can't go to a fundraiser, they're just going to write you a check. And so I think. Um, you know, the, the banquet is a nice thing to have because it gives you that chance to get together and people really want that. But when they know what you're doing and they know that you're speaking for them, uh, they're going to they're going to open their wallet. Well, maybe we 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 need more Delta Waterfall banquets in the Twin Cities. That's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> in, in the big cities, all of them. All right, uh, guys. Well, I appreciate the time. It was an interesting talk. And I think uh, the biggest thing that I gathered, I mean, obviously, the more license sales you get, the more money you get in that. But the power, the strength in numbers, I think, is an important point to remember when you talk yeah. about recruitment and keeping hunter numbers, whether it be duck hunters, pheasant hunters, deer hunters, uh, whatever. But obviously we're talking ducks today. Uh, this, there is strength in numbers and the, uh, the political power you have when you have a big group of people with a shared passion for, uh, for anything, for conservation, for duck hunting, whatever it is, the power that that, that, that amount of people uh, can, can hold is, is pretty important for us to continue doing what we're doing and having places to do it. It's all about yeah. habitat and access and all that stuff. So, uh, John, thanks for joining us in uh, yep. Bismarck. Thank you guys. Hopefully next time you uh, go paddling, you're, you're, <laughs> you're a little more fruitful. My outcome will be a little more productive. My back won't be as sore and my <laughs> game strap will be heavier. That's what we always hope. Absolutely. And uh, Tom, of course, uh, thanks for coming into the, the home studio. It's, it's, this is an impressive place here. I got to tell you, now, and I know where all your money is going. So. <laughs> it's all of these things on the wall and camera gear. Yeah, because it's not the truck I drive, and it's, it, obviously. But uh, uh, congratulations again on retirement. Thank and you. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for being on the show. All right, thanks for having us. Take care, Brett. This has been the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast, part of the Sporting Journal Radio family.
Subscribe wherever you get podcasts or visit us at FindingFurAndFeathers.com. Black Caparl is one of Minnesota's premier waterfowl hunting locations with 50 to 100,000 geese staging annually. And Mid-Migration Outfitters offers guided duck and goose hunting around the Lac Caparl area. Call now to book your hunt or visit MidMigrationOutfitters.com. That's MidMigrationOutfitters.com. That's MidMigrationOutfitters.com for guided duck and goose hunting around the Lac Caparl area in western Minnesota. 